1: The GIST is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official US postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit stamps.com and use the promo code THE GIST. The following podcast contains explicit
2: language. It's Monday, February twenty-third, twenty fifteen, from Slate, it's the GIST. I'm Mike Peska. On the show today, a They Might Be Giant song. And speaking of transformative art, alright, it didn't win the Oscar for Best Movie, but I thought Boyhood might. And there's something that I really very much wanted to say about it. And by the way, I don't think Boyhood got ripped off for the Oscar. I don't really care about the Academy Awards. I didn't even see Birdman. Birdman might be great. I've just been thinking a lot about Boyhood, and I wanted to lay a thought on you, an insight that might explain why it's a great picture, and also why it didn't win the Best Picture Award. So Boyhood is unlike every other movie, and not just because it was directed over 12 years as the cast aged in real time, but Boyhood doesn't want to work like narrative films work. Boyhood wants to work like memory works. This quality made it a slightly different, maybe even unsatisfying upon initial viewing experience, because of our expectations when it comes to drama. To paraphrase Chekhov, if you introduce a gun in act one, it has to go off by act two or maybe act three. But in boyhood, they do introduce a rifle and nothing bad happens. They take some target practice because that's a part of some people's lives. There's also a scene where teenage boys do dangerous things in an abandoned house But nothing bad happens, it's just the things boys do. And it's a weird disquieting feeling in the movie because of how we've been trained. But in an interview director Richard Linkletter had with the Screenwriter Q&A podcast, he explained what he was after.
0: And I wanted the film to feel like a memory. With mine, it wasn't the, the storybook headline big moments weren't the things that actually resonated me. With me, you know, I think about like high school graduation. Yeah, I remember it. It's boring. You know, you're an extra in a big sea of people, it, uh, you're all having the exact same experience. You know, so it's not original. You're not in original space when your first kiss, first sexual experience. None of this. You're kind of in unoriginal territory. But yeah, I was looking for the other little things that were more hard to describe why you would even remember.
2: Linkletter was trying to approximate memory, which is why this movie has gained upon reflection more than any movie I could think of. It might also be why it didn't win the Oscar. That Academy Award audience and all the Academy Award voters aren't the upending expectations people. They are the expectations people. They're the caretakers of narrative expectation. They are the authorial voice that Linkletter is talking about here. You know,
0: Clever works once. And especially in a film like this that couldn't contain any, it didn't want to feel like there was a hand behind it. It didn't, like score didn't work for this movie at all because it it just, it felt there couldn't be a, a hand over it. You had to lose yourself into it and feel like it was your own perceptions
2: not being guided. The Academy is the hand that guides. So it doesn't surprise me that they would less than fully embrace the more subtle, less directed appeal of boyhood. And now, since this is the 200th episode of The Gist, we reflect, and we announce a delayed Antan tweak and give out a lopstar. star, but first, is ISIS Islamic? Yes, and also, that question began with the letters ISISISIS, is that cool or what? President Obama has been criticized for not understanding the true threat of the Islamic state. Here last week, he laid out his reasoning in not constantly injecting Muslim or Islamic before he says the words militant or extremists. Of course, the terrorists do not speak for over a billion Muslims who reject their hateful ideology. They no more represent Islam than any madman who kills innocents in the name of God represents Christianity or Judaism or Buddhism or Hinduism. No religion is responsible for terrorism. People are responsible for violence and terrorism. The Wall Street Journal, Peggy Noonan, like many critics of the president, calls such logic and administration adrift on denial. Subhead, why won't the president think clearly about the nature of the Islamic State? Her main citation in the article is an Atlantic piece by Graham Wood called What ISIS Really Wants. The Atlantic article, by the way, is much less scathing of the administration than Ms. Noonan would have us believe. But don't trust me, the author of What ISIS Really Wants, Graham Wood, is here. Hello, Graham. Hi. So how does knowing what ISIS really wants help the West, the United States, defeating ISIS? Give it clues as to its weaknesses, give it clues as to its aims?
1: So there's two ways. One, knowing what ISIS really is, what it really believes, what it wants— Tells us a few of the strategic goalposts that it has, and the things that it's going to really care about as we interact with it uh, militarily. Um, the second thing that's very important is that knowing what it wants and how it presents itself tells us what it's what it what it thinks, what its propaganda uh, consists of, what these messages are that are are being sent out to uh, possible recruits in the West and and elsewhere. It, none of these none of these videos that come out is even really, I think, remotely comprehensible, unless you understand the illusions that are are coming through. You know, there's a guy wearing a mask, cuts another person's head off, and then he explains it. Uh, understanding what his explanation is, I think, is a pretty important thing, just as it would be important to, to know what communism was uh, in the Cold War, knowing what Nazism was. It's not going to win the war. But being completely ignorant of it is certainly not going to help either.
2: So I've read the entire article and at the risk of spoiling it or giving away the ending, here's what I came away with what ISIS wants. ISIS wants exactly what they say they want all the time, to establish a caliphate and probably to kill all apostates, though there does seem to be some concession for charging a tax to people who don't believe.
1: What am I getting wrong? Well, i I just say one thing. You can't be an apostate unless you were a Muslim once first. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Christians aren't apostates, Jews aren't apostates, and pagans who never converted to Islam aren't apostates. So Christians and Jews get to pay a tax to live under the Islamic State, or they can be enslaved, or they can be killed. Pagans can be enslaved or killed. Muslims who have left Islam in the judgment of the Islamic State... Unfortunately, there's only one option according to the, the, the rules that they, that they claim they're they trying to follow.
2: Does the, I'll say, rigidity of their ideology help them either in recruiting or on the battlefield, or maybe, I'm going to guess, holding them up as uh, an example of, to the people who are attracted to it, you know, non-hypocrites in a hypocritical world?
1: Yes, definitely. You know, they're often criticized by other Muslims on the basis of they're not having many famous clerics with them. And that's true. They'll say, though, but our clerics, uh, the reason we don't have famous clerics is that ours are all dead. They've been killed. That's how sincere they were in their belief. They weren't co-opted by the Saudi establishment or, or anyone else. And so uh, that's that's a sign that uh, we're legit. We're at, at least not the puppets of of some other regime.
2: But one of the factors in explaining ISIS's rise is that they incorporated a lot of Saddam's former generals, Ba'athist generals. If I know anything about Saddam's philosophy, he was used religion, but basically secularist. Is that just outdated information? Is ISIS using these generals for their battlefield knowledge, but not allowing them to uh, have any impact on their ideology? How do they incorporate these kind of military leaders with their overall thinking?
1: That's an excellent question. And to definitely to understand ISIS, you have to understand the ways that they've incorporated elements of the old Saddam regime and just the, the Sunni tribal structures. These are people who have been making deals, have made deals even with the Americans in some cases. And they are being incorporated in a way that, that is quite non-ideological. They have to go through a certain amount of ideological purification, if, if anything else, just so they don't disrupt the message with some kind of obvious inconsistency. What you don't find, of course, is this the presentation that ISIS has toward the outside world. It does not talk about bathism except as something that, that's been left behind by his, some of its members. And so the point of my article was to show that this ideology exists, yeah. that it's consistent, and that it's what they're using as their presentation to the world and to themselves. Doesn't mean that they follow it to a T for every person.
2: Does ISIS gain territory and, and seek to gain power in order to continue to propagate its ideology, or do they propagate this ideology with the ultimate goal of gaining territory?
1: Their ideology says that as the Islamic caliphate, and there can be only one, they're required to expand territory. Even if everybody's leaving them alone, they say that the caliph is obligated annually to expand territory, to wage war on neighboring states, and to uh, forcibly remove obstacles to the implementation of Sharia law. In them.
2: Yeah, so so often in terms of American foreign engagements, the argument was this, our current enemy at the time, will stop at nothing, right? And it, it was, it underlined the domino theory. It was part of why we, why we needed to go in and intervene with Saddam Hussein because the power will grow and grow. People say it with Putin now. But with ISIS, you're saying it really is true.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there are expansionists groups uh, in history, and this is definitely one of them, there's no question that they view the borders that exist everywhere on Earth as false. They're just they're fictions. And, you know, if, if you watch that wonderful series of videos that Vice put out about the Islamic State, there's a real glee in their eyes when they go to the border between Iraq and Syria and say, this border is no more. The, the very recognition of, of borders is another non-negotiable part of who they are. They even say that if the Caliph were to recognize a border, if he were to say, okay, we decided this is as far as we go, and because we don't want to be destroyed by our neighbor, we're going to make a an pact and we'll forever have this border, they say that that would invalidate his rule. They would have to depose him, and it, it would, if, if he denied that that was invalidation, then he would, in fact, himself be removing himself from Islam because he would be yeah, clearly denying something that was that was part of God's law. It's
2: great to have ideology that harkens back to a thousand years ago, now try to run a water filtration system. But does that make them a more dangerous enemy? Or in some ways, does that make the fight pretty clear? You know, you just have to kill them because there will be no negotiating with them.
1: You can certainly stop them from expanding. What would really be helpful, I think, in diffusing the the propaganda is to show that although the picture that they paint is of an, uh, a relentlessly expanding Islamic state that's at war with the West, if, in fact, it's a uh, relentlessly stagnating Islamic state that is really hellish to live in because it's extremely poor, and it's ruled under a, a type of rule of law that, as far as anyone can tell, no human civilization enjoys, this suddenly doesn't sound so so attractive. What would be attractive, unfortunately, is is that other narrative of a polarized West versus Islam.
2: And so that explains why the Obama administration takes pains to say we are not at war against Islam, we are not at war against the religion, we are at war against the extremists. And of course, that's a sensible thing to say. What tact do you think the White House should take in describing this fight?
1: If the president is making theological pronouncements, such as these people are not religious, that these people's interpretations of Islam are wrong. It's really going beyond its writ. First of all, the president is not a Muslim, and so why would any of these people care what what he says is right for, for, for Muslims? He has no authority. I have no authority. That's not a question for, for certainly not for, for non-Muslims, but certainly also not for governments.
2: When you were saying that, you don't necessarily think that the way to defeat them is to kill them, but you could just show them to be not expanding. The insight I got was, ah, so what you do is you hang the charge of hypocrisy on them. If they say, we're an ever-expanding religion, if you show that actually the people under your rule are withering, that would go a long way, maybe more so than against other groups who would you know argue now is the time to retrench and fight harder.
1: I would characterize it as a charge of just, simple factual inaccuracy. If, if they say X is going to happen and then Y happens instead, well, then their ability to pr- predict the future is, is not as good as they said it was. And since so much of their propaganda is about saying that the apocalypse will unfold in the following way, if their prophecy fails, then there's going to be this moment of cognitive dissonance, and then eventually uh, discrediting.
2: They have this self-destruct button baked right into their ideology. We just have to know well, how to press it.
1: Of, of a lot of jihadi groups, I mean, it's not fun to live in, in an Islamic state. You have to, for example, stop smoking. <laughs> There's not many places in the the Muslim world where, where smoking has low prevalence. But, uh, yeah, if you're promoting the vice of smoking, you could be killed in the Islamic state. And people don't like that. People don't like living in, under these conditions. And so, yeah, you give it time, and I, I think the popularity of the group such as it is, would wither away even further in the places where it rules.
2: Graham Wood, writer for The Atlantic, author of What ISIS Really Wants. Thank you, Graham. Thanks. And the winner is Stamps.com. Yes, Stamps.com. So I want to thank everyone who ever believed that you could buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer or printer. Talk about convenient. Am I right, guys? There is a special offer. No, no, I got to go through this list. Hold on, I've written it all down. Okay, okay. Uh, special offer. Use my promo code, the GIST, for this special offer. No risk trial. $110 bonus offer. Includes a digital scale that calculates exact postage for letters and packages. Maya. Stanley, Steve, love you guys. You also get up to $55 free postage. Who else, who else? My publicist, my agent, Gene, we did it. So don't wait, don't play, no, don't play me off. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, I just wanna say for the little boy out there who didn't believe that you could click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist, you can, you can go to stamps.com and enter the gist. Thank you very much. And now the spiel, Antan Twig at 200. It is our 200th episode, our Bicentary, our Bicentennial. And to commemorate, I looked up 200th episodes of other shows, lesser shows than the gist, but shows nonetheless. 200th episode of My Three Sons. Steve gives Robbie 50 bucks to pick up his golf clubs. Since the store isn't opened, Robbie goes to the pool hall. Two girls bet him on a game. They're pool sharks and win all of Robbie's money. So if you know My Three Sons, how's it end up? Charlie, Uncle Charlie, plays pool shark and wins the money back. That has a strange resonance with the 200th episode of The Jeffersons. When prosperity smiles on the Jeffersons and the Willises, Florence becomes jealous of their good fortune and spends her $200 savings to visit a fancy health spa frequented by celebrities. Moving on up from the east side to Springfield, the 200th episode of The Simpsons. Homer runs for the job of Springfield Sanitation Commissioner, and you two play themselves. Let's contrast the drawing power of The Simpsons, in terms of musical acts, with another show, the 200th episode of which is described. Back in Beverly Hills, Donna and her uptight mother Felice argue about what's best for Dr. Martin pending his release from the hospital and David tries to cool down the conflict. Meanwhile, Valerie throws a party at the After Dark where the rock group Bare Naked Ladies are performing and a lonely Kelly drowns her sorrows with hard liquor. Here now, the consequences of Kelly's poor choices. Oh my God,
0: my ring.
2: One minute we're into it, the next she's freaking out. But American TV viewers weren't out of there. They made the gang from Bev Hills engage in madcap escapades for three and a half more years, until mainstays Jason Priestley and Gabrielle Carteris each broke a hip doing the cha-cha at an AARP meeting and had to be put down, humanely destroyed behind a curtain along the backstretch. Oh, I have a couple other 200th episodes. See if you could guess the show. You ready? Chachi and Joni go to the Fonz for advice on how to turn the nerdy Eugene Belvin into the type of guy Jenny Piccolo would want to date. Or how about this one? Following up on the murder of Rocky, Sipowitz and Clark question Chloe, an ex of Rockies, at the adult video store. Alright, which shows? You're right if you said, meet the press in the wonderful world of Disney. So I was thinking about Bicentennials in general. I was thinking about the famous painting, The Spirit of 76. Two drummers, one Pfeiffer. The middle guy maybe he fought a Ticonderoga. Now he just permanently holds down the fort in Crazy Town by the look at his eyes. By the way, I looked up some background on this picture. The artist, Archibald Willard. It was his father who was the middle drummer, Crazy eyed Drummer guy. I'll read a little bit about the history of the picture. It was first exhibited at the Centennial Exhibition in 1876. It created no enthusiasm in the art world. No critic hailed it as the work of a new genius. No art lovers burned incense before it. That's a dismissive way of describing some people. But every man, woman, and child that cherish the simple rock-bottom principles of patriotism Greeted the picture with a quickening heartbeat and apparently not a lit incense stick. You know, that picture harkens back to a lot of things, and I think it inspires Americans, but it does raise a question. I think the artist Archibald Willard would be proud that the art endures, but he and everyone else associated with the picture might be flummoxed at what has ever happened to fife playing. Back then, the Fife was in demand. The guy who played the Fife was a real Fife player. Everyone wanted him to come play Fife for them. Cut to 100 years later. When you say the Fife, you just think of that picture. Where has the Fife gone? Are there so many better woodwind instruments that have replaced it? Bring back the Fife, I say. But don't bring back some of the following misstatements I've made. And now corrections. We do this on the Antan Twig. It's our word for a three-week period. We sum up. We say sorry. Sorry that we said... Burkina Faso is a dictatorship. That stopped being true about October 2014. Burkina Faso, no longer a dictatorship. I want to thank Jonathan Kulik for mentioning that. I want to thank Kavan Gavim for writing that Black Mirror is not a Netflix series and it's not a BBC series. And in the last sentence of that email, he writes, I love Black Mirror. I cannot check that. Also, this was a mistake that a few people nailed. Cyanide, not arsenic, is the one that smells like bitter almonds. Cyanide. Arsenic smells like overly ripe kumquats with top notes of fig pudding and asparagus is that although different varietals may vary okay on to the star. our award for the listener the tweeter the facebook poster the interactor -er who made our lives better sometimes i give runners up nope going right to the Lopstar. it's ted plafker p-l-a-f-k-e-r plafker dear mike Today, for the third time since I started listening, I heard you say something that made me want to write in and say, "Right on! I love it. I love it. He w- wanted to hit me with an expression that Florence, the maid from the Jeffersons, might respond to. The first time, I was walking down a street in Ulaanbaatar when I heard you talk about travel tips, like wear an old T-shirt and throw it out, old magazines, read them, leave them on the plane. This guy, world traveler, Ulaanbaatar, Plafker, says he does this. The second time, a quote... It was just like that, but I can't remember any of the details. But the third time, I was talking about the size of Belgium. Plafker moves to Beijing in 1989. Hears that the administrative Beijing, the size is about the size of Belgium, repeats it, repeats it. One day looks it up. It's not the size of Belgium. It's somewhere between the size of East Timor and Swaziland. Go figure. You know, Ted, we would like to give you an award as big as all outdoors. But instead, we'll settle for one that's somewhere in between East Timor and Swaziland. You are the lob star of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. To listen to the show, other shows like ours... Ours, past episodes of our show. Go to iTunes. When you're there, give us a review. Reviews are really helpful, and I look at the reviews. Slate.com slash gist email is a way to sign up for a daily email that tells you exactly when the show is ready, and you can play the show off that email. Yo, the app Yo works in a similar way. Download that app and then sign up for podcast. We're on Facebook.com slash slate gist. Gist producer Andrea Salenzi was playing darts in a biker saloon. Meanwhile, across town, just intern Claire Tennisgetter was yodeling at an all-ages club at the very same time managing producer of Slate Podcasts, Joel Meyer, was marking his territory by urinating, defecating, scratching, rubbing, and biting trees in a rainforest cafe, while unbeknownst to him... At that exact moment, Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, was playing mumble peg in a well-lit truck stop. Me, I was dancing in the lesbian bar. Wait, What? Huh? What's that? Oh, I see. That's the name of the new They Might Be Giants song. It's a dial-a-song song. song. To dial dial dial-a-song, dial 844-387-6962. That starts tomorrow. Today, you can listen to that song right here, right now, as we will play every Monday in 2015. A debut, They Might Be Giants, dial a song. Ladies and gentlemen, this is They Might Be Giants covering a Jonathan Richmond tune, I Was Dancing in the Lesbian Bar.
0: party.